This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Sang Won Su. I'm a professor at the Brent School of Environmental Science and Management. And it's my great pleasure and honor to introduce our Zurich Distinguished Professor and today's seminar speaker, uh, Mr. Mark Radkar. Uh, Mr. Radkar is heading the Energy and Climate Branch at the UN Environment in Paris, and he will share his insights on intergovernmental climate negotiations. Personally, I um, had a pleasure working with him under the UN um, Sustainable Development Goal process, and it was fun, and it's a great uh, honor to see you on campus. How many of you in this room think that you have been wandering around a few different disciplines or professions before arriving at Brand? Okay. Mr. Radkar is your friend. <laughs> so Mr. Radkar did his undergrad at MIT and master's at UC Berkeley in civil engineering. And then uh, Reagan's recession kicked in, and he decided to flew to the Thailand. Um, and he worked uh, as a Peace Corps volunteer for three and a half years, and it turned out to be a great move in retrospect. There he helped the country establish what later became the Ministry of the Environment, and had the opportunity to work with the UN environment. And UN environment has a, a Bangkok regional office, and it still has. Um, and later, that uh, relationship um, you know, reconnected him to the UN later. Um, now there, he developed the interest in international environmental policy, and he d decided to come back to school. And he did another master's degree in uh, environmental policy at uh, Harvard School of uh, Kennedy School of uh, Government at Harvard. Since then, he worked for the US EPA, World Bank, and went back to Bangkok again, and finally settled in the UN environment in Paris. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's an electrical part, hopefully. All right. Um, in his capacity uh, as the head of the energy and climate branch of the UN environment, he focuses on the energy technologies and their applications, especially in developing countries, which is very important if we are really serious about addressing the climate uh, challenge here. Finally, I would like to thank Zurich Foundation for their generous support that allows us to bring distinguished leaders in our field. Please give an applause to Zurich Foundation. So with that, please uh, join me to welcome Mr. Radkar. Thank you. Thank you very much. Is uh, this turned on now? Yes. Good. Thank you. Well, Sangwan, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here with you today. Um, I thought it would be, well, you know, a good piece of advice is always talk about the things that you understand that you hope other people don't understand so that they can't catch you out in the question and answer or the discussion period. So I thought it might be interesting to share with you a kind of insider perspective on climate negotiations and, and focus quite a bit on the um, COP24, the 24th Conference of the Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which which was held in Katowice, Poland in December. So what were the outcomes? What does that mean in terms of going forward? And then use that as a segue to what do we in UN environment 
do to help prepare countries for those types of negotiations? And, and what do we do as a consequence of what's agreed by, by governments? Um, so in, in other words, you know, we're, we're partly responsible for what goes in and we, we bear some responsibility for what comes out. Um, but a little bit about UN environment. I, I'm not sure how many, how many people know what, what UN environment or the UN environment program is, but if you think of it as the Ministry of Environment or the equivalent of the EPA at the intergovernmental level, it is part of the UN Secretariat formally. My boss's boss, in a sense, is the Secretary General of the UN. And it functions in a number of different ways. Maybe the most notable is to help intergovernmental negotiations um, on transboundary environmental issues. So things like the Montreal Protocol were negotiated under UNEP. We have custody of quite a few of the secretariats that maintain those processes after there's an agreement. So various amendments to uh, international treaties and such. But the area in which I work is primarily related to the consequence. How do we help primarily developing countries deal with what is agreed at the international level? So a bit about um, climate change conferences. I, I liken them to a, a combination of intergovernmental negotiations, trade fairs, educational symposia, um, media events, uh, an opportunity for special interest groups to protest. Um, it's a kind of a freewheeling environment in which to gain access, at least to the formal parts, you need to be on a list, but then there are various levels of uh, uh, colored badges that allow you to gain access to kind of think of it as concentric circles. And at the, at the, the centermost circle are governments, and they are the ones that, that are the most important. They're negotiating some aspect of an intergovernmental treaty. And around that is a sort of peripheral circles of interested observers and outsiders that are trying to influence all of that. Most of the interesting bits take place outside of public view. When it really gets to the crunch issues, usually there are a handful of governments negotiating on, on behalf of blocks of other countries and they are somewhere that nobody can find. And it's very, very difficult to actually know what's going on in real time. They're quite confusing um, in, in, a, in a real time sense. And the one rule is never trust anybody who says that they know what's going on because rarely, rarely does anybody. So uh, all of you are aware of the Paris Agreement, I'm sure. Just a little bit on how did Katowice compare to Paris and, and Copenhagen, um, which preceded it by a number of years. So. These events, uh, well, this particular event attracted, um, as you can see, 18,000 participants in total. Those were the ones who were registered. There were others outside on the streets trying to influence things, but uh, 18,000, most of them from countries, but a, a good, although diminished number of journalists and, uh, and, and observers. So people like me are observers. We're kind of a special observer, but we're not formally negotiating in a sense, but supporting. The, um, the main goal in Katowice was to complete something called the Paris Rule Book. And if you think of the Paris Agreement uh, as, as a political understanding between or among governments, it set a very broad framework um, that was agreed by, in most cases, heads of state. So. The, the agreement is, is akin to, I would say, a legislative 
um, a, a legislative outcome in the United States. You have a framework legislation. Now it needs to be turned into specific regulations, the, the actual rules, hence the term rule book. And the rule book um, was several years uh, in, in negotiation because it, it matters a whole lot. Um, yes. So the, the, there were initially very, I would say, low expectations. There's always a mood for one of these large intergovernmental gatherings. And so little progress had been made that actually governments agreed to insert an entire new additional negotiating session before the main meeting. This is a more technical level. There are experts who gather and try to work out things so that the political agreement can be reached during the second week of the formal COP, the Conference of the Parties. And they had made so little progress during the, the, in the preceding three years, uh, two and a half years, that an additional session that um, did not make much, much uh, headway. And going into the Katowice COP, they had a 307-page negotiating text. So 307 pages is a lot for governments to agree in two weeks. I mean, it's an indication that things are not going very well. And the, the facilitators, the co-negotiator facilitators, you know, were warned going in that time was not on our side. Um, there are still far too many options on the table. Now, what this, what this means in, in practice is you have, well, let me, let me a little bit more on, Poland was not... Um, the obvious choice for one of these meetings. In fact, it was the third time that Poland has hosted uh, one of the COPs in the last 10 years. And if I'm, I'm sure you're all well aware of Poland's heavy dependence on coal. Um, it's not a country that's rich in renewable energy resources. The government is somewhat similar to the government in Washington in terms of being skeptical about climate change. And it's an outlier in the in negotiating block of the European Union. So it was not always auguring well for Poland as, the, as the, the host. That's important because the president of the country, the president of the COP in a sense, is the host country. So they set the style and the tone of the negotiations. So we had... Um, as well, external environments that, that kind of cast a cloud over the direction of the negotiations. The one positive thing was that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a few weeks before, had, had issued a report that the COP had requested on what would it take to limit warming um, to 1.5 degrees C. That came out and it was very, um, very definitive. Um, there were, it was not adopted, uh, as I'll mentioned, uh, or seen positively by all countries. But the list of negatives was much greater. You had street protests in France that were in part triggered by the uh, Macron government's imposition of a earlier agreed tax on, on transport fuels, um, setback in Germany in terms of political direction for, for the phase out of coal. And of course, you know, here closer to home, very negative signals coming from the, the Trump administration. Um, the COPs are, are always sort of fluid. There, there's almost a, um, a psychology that seems to develop around each one, a mood. And something is always coming up. There's a lot of rumors going on, and rumors and counter-rumors. And it's, a, as I mentioned, a, a chaotic environment where, where 
what is on the surface is, is somehow not always what's what's uh, occurring beneath the surface, and and that leads to a lot of speculation on what what's really happening. What have you heard? What uh, no, I heard that. that that's counter. The um, the IPCC report, um, as I mentioned, was there was a long debate about whether the the government should welcome the report, which would have been the conventional wording and an outcome, or just note it. Now that sounds like a minor thing, but in diplomatic speak, welcoming something that you've asked for is tantamount to saying, good, you did what we asked. Noting it is a little bit like a, like a D grade, I think. And it wasn't, <clears throat> we note it. And there was a lot of back and forth between governments um, that, that really didn't want to pretend, well, wanted to pretend that that report had never been requested and certainly didn't agree with the, with the, uh, the outcomes in it. The Secretary General of the UN intervened three times. That was unprecedented. He went back and forth from New York. He hadn't planned to be there. It's not that he was uh, you know, trying to fly across the Atlantic Ocean unnecessarily, but he personally intervened to kind of bang heads a little bit and, and ensure an outcome. Um, there were a number of other, if you're a, a student of these things, you saw the reformulation of certain negotiating blocks that had become a little bit um, frayed at the edges. So one of them bans the, the major developing economies. It's called the basic group. So Brazil, South Africa, China, and India started to, I would say, row in unison in a sense. And the what, what is called the, the high ambition group. So the European Commission, Norway, a lot of the small island developing states often adopt a common forward-looking sort of a negotiating stance, and they came together. Interesting to note was that China... China, in a sense, stepped into, this is a personal opinion, and I think I was, request, I was required and should have started by saying, everything I tell you here is, is my personal opinion. It's not that of the United Nations, but of course it's very much informed by what I do on my day-to-day -day job. But you can't quote me and say that the Secretary General you know, said so-and-so through Mark. That, that, that would not work. So just as an indication of how these things unfold, is undoubtedly difficult to see in the back. But the, the bars and the colors show the number of brackets in text. So that, that lengthy negotiating document will, if you examine it, it as it evolved, there are brackets around certain phrases and sentences and entire paragraphs where there is no agreement. And the goal is by the end to have no bracketed text. That means it's agreed by all countries. The, the Climate Change Convention is based on consensus, so it's important that everybody agree on everything. Otherwise, it's no deal. So there's a lot of back and forth about removing what, are called, what is called bracketed text. So if you looked at, for example, the, the reddish-orange bar, the reddish bar toward the top on the left, you see quite a large chunk, and that had to do with the text related to transparency, the reporting of what countries are actually doing. And so there's a lot of trading. We will strike this text, or we'll remove this bracket if you remove that bracket. One country might, and it's all a search for, in a, both a strategic and a tactical sense, moving towards some sort of an agreement. And you see that there, in most cases, the number of brackets go down, but sometimes a country or a block will say, well, if you're going to say that, we're going we're to go back, in a sense, and add some more brackets on text. And by the end, you know, it, it's, it's, it's dwindled down to here and then finally agreement. The question is, how much do you have to throw away that you care about to get agreement? 
um, politically disastrous is to leave without an agreement. You can have an agreement that's very, very weak, but as long as it's an agreement, that's better than no agreement in a sense. So you'll recall that the, um, a bit on the outcomes, the, the heart of the Paris Agreement was a restructuring of the architecture of intergovernmental approach to climate change. Copenhagen had failed because it, in, in a sense, the Kyoto Protocol was in many ways flawed from the beginning because it attempted to say, this is how much emissions need to be reduced and we will apportion that responsibility to different countries based on their economic status and the development, uh, development state and so on. And in, in retrospect, I think it was sort of doomed to failure because it's very difficult once you've defined an amount to, to portion it up given so many variables and so many differences of opinion. So the Paris Agreement turned that around and it said, listen, we know we have to get there. Why doesn't everybody say what they could do now? and commit to it, and these were called the Nationally Determined Contribution, NDCs, so a Nationally Determined Contribution to a Common Goal, and then we will, we will do the math, see where that takes us, and then periodically review. Now, the idea that technologies would improve, uh, costs would drop, countries would gain experience, it would learn from one another, and, and so the, the mantra becomes raising ambition over time. You could make an analogy to losing weight. You know, if uh, you have to get started and you do a little bit, and then once you're encouraged, you do a little bit more, and then you know this sort of thing. So, there was a um, a lot of rules then that needed to be put into place about what what is the reporting mechanism. How frequently do people have to report on what's happening? Because you could appreciate that from this this type of architecture. Um, each country saying it will contribute something, it's really based a lot on trust and on accurate reporting by countries to the Climate Change Secretariat in Bonn on what they're actually doing. How much have they achieved in terms of their pledge? Again, the analogy, if you said you were collectively a, a weight loss group where you're, you're trying to mutually support each other's ambitions, and if nobody ever gets on the scale and just says they're doing better, you know, maybe, maybe the, the ethos is not what you'd like it to be, and, and you're not making as much progress as, you, as you'd like. So a technical detail about you know, what's to be reported by whom and, and this sort of thing. Um, it gives a lot of flexibility to countries, but they have to explain how they're using the flexibility. So it's, it's prescriptive to a certain, a certain level. On mitigation, which is really the, the heart of bringing GHG emissions down, the key anchors were set, but a lot was kicked off um, into the future. Um, we know there were some good attempts at accounting, what I would call accounting rules. It's, it's important that everybody be measuring and reporting on the, on the same basis, so it's, it's somewhat akin to having accounting standards so that you know, you can compare one company to another, in this case, one country to another. But some items were deferred until, until the future. Um, on technology, which is the area that I work, it's, it's usually not a very contentious area because it doesn't attempt to do very much. Um, basically, to agree on the importance of transferring broadly and, 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 and rapidly technologies that would bring down greenhouse gas emissions and some, some guidance, um, guidance to the system, the UN system, but also external about you know, what, are, what are the areas that are priorities and so on. 
Finance is always important, but there was not very much that was new. It was not really on the agenda so much. Um, kind of reiterations of the importance that climate change mitigation and, and adaptation certainly um, do have costs. Often there are great benefits, but there's a disparity on you know who pays and when the benefits accrue and that sort of thing. So international financial transfers, the role of the private sector and so on. One disappointment to many in the private sector was that um, what are called the the uh, market-based mechanisms was deferred until next year. Brazil was a bit of a holdout on some of the features and they could not reach agreement. So an example where, where to reach agreement, something was just set aside until the future. Um, I think in the interests of time, I, I have maybe a little bit too much. So there's a, the Fijian presidency of the COP had spent it adopted approach of dialogue and discussion that was meant to help foster agreement. It's called the Talanoa Dialogue, and it um, I think it went a good a good way in making countries understand each other's positions and perspectives a little bit better. There, it, it's interesting to see how when countries pledge, there are very different national approaches. Um, in the United States, everything tends to have a very legalistic view. The U.S. government is very careful, very careful about finding in agreed outcome text anything that might have legal ramifications. Um, the Chinese government, in my in my way of looking at it, is very careful to make sure that it can deliver on what it what it's been agreed, not for legal purposes, but more for sort of reasons of national pride. If you say you're gonna do something, you'd like to be able to show. So they tend to under-promise and, and over-deliver. The European Union uh, member states, however, they take a, a position of, let's set a stretch goal and really try hard, but if we don't reach it, at least we've tried hard. So you see, you see a lot of different kind of national dynamics. And, and when it comes to sort of what should we set as the level of ambition, it's, it's, it's quite a bit different depending on almost national, you know, na national mood or national um, way of framing issues. And you know, how do you approach these things legally, morally, um, you know, ethically in some sense? There are a lot of different drivers. So some key messages was, we did a, a straw poll internally, and we decided that the glass was two-thirds full. It was <clears throat> better than expected, but you know, in, in some sense, it's not nearly enough. And I'll return to that in a moment. There were, the Paris rulebook was agreed, um, so there is a good basis for at least moving forward on the, on the accounting and the transparency. China, uh, in what I think is an underappreciated move, gave up one of its long-standing negotiating positions, which is that it is a developing country and it should be treated like some of the, the least developed countries in Africa. That was actually, I mean, some people said that was China moving into a kind of leadership vacuum caused when the U.S. retreated. Um, that's a very political statement, so I won't venture to say whether I think that, they, I mean, the U.N. would never sort of say, yes, that's the cause, but that's what a lot of observers said. Um, and there are the usual sort of, I would say, weaknesses in terms of enforcement. There are 
very little intergovernmental negotiation, well, treaties, conventions like this that actually have stringent enforcement mechanisms. A lot depends on self-enforcement. So between the lines, um, there's a lot of, in the, in the Katowice outcome document, a lot of um, use of the word relevant, relevant. This is the kind of thing that the lawyers slip in, and then it's sort of left to everyone else to decide what exact, exactly is relevant. Um, and the and maybe another notable thing about uh, the Katowice was that the non-governmental organizations were relatively less visible in part because the Polish government made it difficult for them to be there and to do anything that was publicly visible. I think I'd put that on an earlier slide. They, they clamped down. They were afraid of protests and, and, and things that would disrupt the cop. Next steps in this process, uh, in, later this year, the continuation of the, the annual series will, will, uh, will occur, the COP25 in Chile, um, and then the following year in the United Arab Emirates, uh, UK and Italy. And then in 2025, as part of the Paris Agreement, there's something called the Global Stock Take, which is a kind of a collective, where are we now? Remember that the whole idea was sort of ratcheting upward, increasing ambition. You'll hear that word a lot if you follow these. Increasing ambition, increasing ambition. So the, the next chance to really sort of formally take, take stock is the, the global stock take, which will occur in 2023. So I wanted to move on to how do we, what, what is our role in all of this in UN environment? And I picked, um, I picked one area that, that actually has maybe not surprisingly become the most influential thing that we do, which is, which is a publication called the Emission Gap Report. It came about because the head of our organization and the, the secretary of the Climate Change Convention sat down one day and, and he said, what could we do to help you, you who organize the meetings? And she said, a detailed analysis of what it all means in terms of when countries say this and this and this and this, if you add it all up and do the math, which is not so easy, what, would it, what does it all mean? And she, and she said, we could never do that. The countries would immediately object and say, we did not request you in the secretariat to do that kind of analysis. And our head, head of, uh, of UNEP at the time said, yes, we can do that. No one told us we can't. So that, if you think that would be a contribution. So we started the analysis. And for nine years now, we have undertaken what amounts to a, a, a process like, not unlike the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, there is a, a, a team of, of leading authors and, and review editors and contributing authors, all based on peer-reviewed publications, a bit of modeling. And the goal is to determine what does it all mean when you add up what countries have said. So in the, in the context, we have the Talanoa Dialogue. As I mentioned, there was the Global Climate Action Summit that Governor Brown had organized um, in San Francisco in September, I believe. And then w the IPCC report on 1.5 degrees came out in October. We released our UN Environment Emission Gap report and then the climate uh, the following month and then, and then the climate uh, conference kicked off. The trends um, are, as you, I'm sure you're all aware, rather worrisome. The greenhouse gas emissions show no, no, shine of, no sign of peaking. Um, those from energy increased, actually, after a two-year decline. Uh, they increased in 2017. 
the emissions um, are about, as best we can estimate, about 53 gigatons of carbon. And they really need to be down in the level of about, oh, 25% below that or, or by, by 2030 and 55% if you take the median trend by 2030 to, to stay on the two degree and one, or to remain consistent with the two degree and 1.5 degree path. So if you disaggregate that, what you'd see is, you know, the global GDP is, in, is of course, increasing. Primary energy demand has been increasing. Energy intensity is decreasing. So we're getting better at extracting value from energy in terms of economic output. The carbon intensity is also going down, which is a good thing. Shift to renewables and, 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 and so on. But, and you'd see that there are decreasing trends for the other non-carbon greenhouse gases. So methane, nitrous oxides, fluorinated HFCs and so on are all going down, but they're still positive. So is that a good, are we on the right trend or not? They need to be negative. They need to be, um, we need to be reducing emissions, not increasing them, but the trend is at least in the right direction. So reduced to where where we if you add up these nationally determined contributions the upper bar is sort of a baseline case the the blue band beneath it you see here 2015 to 2030 and then gigatons of carbon the current policy scenarios are where governments were headed before they announced their nationally determined contributions and the blue band and the green band down at the bottom are where we really need, that's the trajectory we really should be on in terms of least cost compliance or least cost uh, adherence, maybe a better word, with the two degree and 1.5. So the unconditional, what are called unconditional NDCs, the pledges of all governments would drop that by about three gigatons of carbon. If you add in what are called conditional, we will do so and so if we receive some funding or if we receive support, that takes it down about another three gigatons. So six gigatons of carbon, um, which is clearly insufficient to put us on, on the path to a, a two-degree two pathway. That means that the gap, hence the emissions gap report, is about 13 gigatons um, to stay on the two-degree path and, and 15 gigatons to stay on the 1.5 degree path, and even more if we wanted to get down to 1.5 degrees with the, I'm sorry, with the conditional and, and unconditional. So this is, this is the type of message that we in, in UN Environment bring to the COP. To, to arrive here requires sort of dis, adding to, it's, it's an exercise of taking all the national contributions, these nationally determined contributions, which might range from, we are going to institute a vehicle fuel efficiency standard in our country to limit the amount of gasoline that a car will need, somewhat equivalent to a CAFE standard, starting in 2025. Um, another country might have said, we're going to improve electrical energy efficiency in, in uh, home appliances starting in 2022. So it's, it's an exercise in sort of trying to reduce these to a common metric and then, and then adding them together. The, um, the headlines are that the NDCs are in a sense a first start, but they're nowhere near enough. Um, full implementation would require um, much more ambition. 
and we need actually to do this rather quickly because uh, the, the more that emissions continue to grow, the harder it is going to be to dig out. Um, there are many different opportunities. You know, they range from strengthening existing targets, adding new targets, accelerating timelines, um, additional policies and actions, and so on. And the report, in an attempt to go from what our, our executive director said, you know, this is very gloomy. Can't we offer more advice to governments on how to move forward? Um, it be, what began with an original sort of stock-taking of this is where we are is pretty gloomy. And he said, you know, we have to offer hope. We have to offer advice or guidance or at least the framing of it um, in something that could be influential in the realm of the COP. So the potentials are great. Um, the potentials for emission reduction, they, you know, cover energy, industry, forestry, transport, you know, buildings, and, and so on. Um, most of them would have other environmental, economic, and social benefits. So there's a, a compelling rationale for taking action. And the, the goal is, like, how to get over the inertia. So let me, let me tell you then what people like me um, spend my days on. Uh, and I'm going to use energy efficiency as, as an example. So we, we have had, for a number of years, a program called United for Efficiency. Uh, and it is um, an example of what I'd said earlier. After scaring people with the numbers, um, we, we try to offer advice and guidance and support for actually taking action. It's that equivalent of when one of my colleagues said, you know, the first part is like going to the doctor and they tell you you're overweight, your diet is terrible, you're smoking, you drink too much, you're going to have a fatal heart attack within five years. And that you can leave the doctor's office and say, yeah, that was pretty sobering advice. My part of the, of the equation is <clears throat> having been convinced that the doctor was right, we try to be like the diet coach and the exercise coach and the person who can get you on a healthier lifestyle by providing motivation and support and all that kind of thing. So first to recognize we actually are getting a lot better in using energy um, more efficiently. The energy efficiency trends are encouraging. Um, this is a slide taken from analysis done by the International Energy Agency with, with whom we work rather closely, both being in Paris. And in, in a sense, if we were not improving energy efficiency across the board, today we would be using something like 15% more energy relative to the year 2000 than, than we would otherwise. My own, uh, the head of, of UN Environment got very excited about energy energy efficiency when he heard Stephen Chu make a presentation to the Secretary General and, and, and uh, Dr. Chu mentioned how many power plants in the United States had not needed to be constructed simply because of refrigerator efficiency standards that the Department of Energy and EPA had progressively tightened since the mid-19, well, the early 1980s. And, you know, you'd think hmm, refrigerator efficiency standards, it's not very interesting, but 86 86 large power plants were not built, in a sense, because refrigerators became more efficient, they became larger. The phase-out of uh, CFCs as a refrigerant and the foam-blowing agent occurred concurrently. All sorts of amenities were added. People liked refrigerators more, and they were much more environmentally uh, friendly and, and cheaper to run. Um, 
again from the International Energy Agency, uh, you know, that they, they do a lot of analysis on, on energy efficiency, and we tend to take take their analysis into country-specific um, suggestions. So we are an environmental organization, and why would any energy ministry listen to anything that we would say is a valid question? But if we go, as we often do, armed with um, information and analysis from a, a reputable partner like the IEA, it's much more, much more credible, and we often work with them. So broad uh, advantages, um, if you take just uh, the China, EU, the EU member states, China and India, all of which import fuel, um, savings of about $700 billion a year, um, avoided energy expenditure in industry of IEA estimates $600 billion US a year, and avoided spending by households through more efficient use of energy, providing the same amenities of you know, half a trillion dollars. So this is compelling. These are compelling sort of numbers for, for ministries of economy or the finance ministry, which is often worried, worried about, uh, you know, where does all that energy, uh, where is it going to be paid from? So in, in UN Environment, we picked five categories of equipment. So room air conditioners, um, indoor lighting, well, indoor and outdoor lighting, I'm sorry, electric motor systems, re residential refrigerators and distribution transformers. And we, um, these account for over half of electricity consumption globally. Now, the interesting thing is the, c the countries in green on this map have some sort of standard related to energy efficiency of those, of those five categories. The ones in gray have no standards whatsoever. So in, this, in, in Russia, there's no efficiency standard for distribution transformers, those things that sit up on utility poles. Most of uh, sub-Saharan Africa has no efficiency standards for motors. Um, and the fact that, that some are green doesn't indicate that their efficiency standard is good. It might be severely outdated, uh, you know, not been revived or revised in, in many, many years. So not surprisingly, you find like the United States and Europe and, and Australia, basically the, the OECD member countries generally are pretty good, but there's still room for improvement. So our efforts focus on all those gray areas and on the weak green areas. Um, our approach is to bring very credible technical and policy advice to countries, and we do that by forming large consortia of partners, um, often from industry, from NGOs, from reputable laboratories and research organizations. So, for example, we work quite closely with, um, well, maybe I shouldn't say it in this audience, but UC Berkeley, you know, does, does a, a lot of... A lot of um, analysis for the U.S. Department of Energy. They're very good on energy efficiency, and we work closely with, with the group at, uh, at the LBNL um, on, on promoting solid technical information to two countries. Um, we adopt an approach where the core is minimum energy performance standards, but around that is, is a bundle of policy advice that um, provides information to consumers so that the purchasing decision, decisions are better informed. So these are things like labeling programs. Um, we work with financial institutions to overcome the barriers that a higher initial purchase price 
might might uh, act in discouraging somebody from buying a more efficient appliance. And these can be things like utility on um, on bill financing. You know, your utility actually finances part of the purchase of the new piece of equipment, and you pay it back through a, in a sense, a surcharge on the on the electricity bill. But because the electricity demand has gone down, you might actually not even notice that you're paying anything additional for, for the equipment and so on. Um, we put emphasis on um, end-of-life equipment policies in governments. Um, there was concern, lar largely gone now, but concern, for example, that the move from incandescent light lamps to um, compact fluorescent lamps, which contain mercury, would be distributing, distributing a lot of mercury throughout the world. Um, with the advent of light-emitting diodes, you know, LEDs, the, the mercury issue has become less less important. But um, you know, anything that's new and improved generally is is some sort of um, electronic waste at the end of its life. And so that's where people like like Sangwan are important at looking at the life cycle analysis of, of of all these changes in the in the energy system. So our approach. Promote efficient products, uh, offer incentives, um, ban inefficient products by setting a floor below which that product cannot be sold, um, and then things that help or actions that policies and such that, that help monitor market performance, make sure that good products, only good products are available, bad products are, are, are pulled from the market. The numbers are, are compelling. We've prepared um, detailed fact sheets for 150 countries, basically every developing country, looking at what are the electricity savings by moving toward higher efficiency standards for those five products, um, what are the CO2 emissions avoided on a national level, how much money can be saved um, for businesses and consumers, and how much money does not need to be invested in new supply infrastructure? And this is, I think, an example of taking the global aggregate and reducing it to national level information that is much, much, much more persuasive to policymakers. So a final few words on, on air conditioning. Um, this is an estimate from the Netherlands Environmental Assessment Agency. They're, they're equivalent of, of of the US uh, Environmental Protection Agency, and a, a forecast of cooling demand, or energy for cooling demand versus heating demand. Now, it's not surprising in a, in a warming world, demand for heating probably would go down and demand for air conditioning would go up. And that's what you see in their forecast. Um, not only is it going up, it's going up alarmingly. Now, personally, I wouldn't put a lot of confidence on numbers you know, in 2100 and so on, but too far out. But it is absolutely true that the amount of um, the amount of demand for cooling is going up. We see cooling as is coming at the intersection of the three internationally agreed goals. You know, one is of course the Paris Climate Agreement. It's also central to the Sustainable Development Goals of the United Nations, and interestingly, now the Montreal Protocol Kigali Amendment. So the Kigali Amendment brought energy efficiency within the, the intergovernmental treaty that was um, prior to that dealing solely with the phase-out of ozone-depleting substances. HFCs, the, uh, one of the replacement chemicals for ozone-depleting refrigerants, is not 
in any way connected with ozone layer depletion, but it is a very powerful greenhouse gas. And therefore, the decision by governments, largely driven by um, active engagement, actually the, the champion was the US uh, government under the Obama administration. They said, we have this whole regime of dealing with ozone layer protection, and they know the community that has developed, they know how to deal with um, engineering transitions of refrigerators and air conditioners. They know how to deal with customs compliance. Why don't we just take HFCs, this whole category of greenhouse gases, and move it over to a completely different regime? That, that took some, I think, six years of negotiation. And the interesting feature was that the final outcome of this Kigali Amendment was that it encouraged governments to say, look at energy efficiency opportunities while you make the phase down of these HFCs. And that, that is easier said than done um, because the, the financing of something that actually gives you a return on the investment is, is um, not something that that community is very good at dealing with. The Kigali Amendment sort of takes countries into a realm where maybe money should be spent for something that has a positive return on investment, and they don't know how to deal with that. Everything before had been kind of, we will pay you, developing country, to take some action where there's a clear cost but a global benefit. So there is uh, much, I would say, hope put on the fact that, that this particularly thorny issue of rapid demand and cooling, um, the fact that technologies exist and that the economics are favorable, but it's, it really amounts to kind of a large, a large um, global effort in, in getting better technologies adopted more rapidly, particularly in countries like India, where the demand is, is really skyrocketing as uh, incomes increase and such. So I think in the interest of time, because I'm speaking too long, I had a few additional slides here on you know, where is the demand for cooling growing? You could see China and India, not surprisingly, hot countries, or at least southern China, um, rising incomes, acquisition of, of room air conditioners and so on. So great potential there and a need to, um, to sort of move aggressively in this window of time. The final word would be on, uh, again, on partnerships. And very interesting, the role that a, a number of foundations um, here in California, primarily, mostly in the Bay Area. But they have banded together two years ago to get a prompt start on the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol. These intergovernmental negotiations often result in, as I said, a consensus document. And one way to get consensus is to say, we will agree to do things, but far enough off that it doesn't disturb this political cycle. It's for the next administration to deal with. So in 2016, 17 philanthropic foundations, so um, the Gates Foundation, Hewlett, um, the Packard Foundation, MacArthur Foundation, and so on, put up a lot of money to get a head start on what would be the intergovernmental process. They said we would, we would test good examples. We would, we would do a lot of uh, communications and public awareness. We would... We would get ahead of the, the way the governments usually act, which is slow, um, and, and see if we could kickstart this whole process. And the early indications are that it's this is sort of philanthropic money which comes 
with fewer strings attached and maybe more flexibility is actually proving to be very, very useful. Um, so I would watch that space if you're interested because I think the, the fact that philanthropy was willing to come in and do something. But the overriding conclusion is that, uh, as I started on that first slide, that unless we collectively increase ambitions, we are not headed in a, on a, in a very good path. And it is going to be very difficult to, um, to get out of the uh, collective mess that we're currently sort of looking at. So thank you very much. I think I spoke a little bit longer than I was supposed to, but um, we should still have some time for questions if you have any. So thank you. Thank you very much. Um, thank you so much for your talk. And while I totally agree that energy efficiency improvements are not something that should be abandoned, tons more work to be done, I also feel that they're treating the symptom of an underlying cause, which is overconsumption in developed countries and also unfettered population growth globally. And so I'm wondering if there's any dialogue at the COP24 or in your experience in general about these broader talks on how to shift our economy so it's maybe less consumption material driven. And I know that carbon taxes, things like this, could address that. So I was disappointed to see that market mechanisms were kind of pushed to the next cop, but I'd love to I'd love to hear your your yeah, interest or Yeah. I, I you don't certainly population discussions about population growth rates and such don't don't really come into the COP discussions. Um, the broader issue that you said of overconsumption, or, or maybe it's the, the emulation of Western lifestyles in, in rapidly growing developing countries, I think is, is an issue that a lot of my colleagues work on. Um, we, we have a program called Sustainable Production and Consumption, which we it's sort of a catch-all phrase for a lot of different things. And we, we kind of joke like, okay, sustainable production and consumption, what's left? I mean, but it is meant in, in part to address those sorts of issues and, and really take a fundamental look at, at you know, how it is that we, as societies and countries, you know, use energy or, or use materials um, to bring about human welfare. You can understand it's it's extremely sensitive politically, um, but it it is something that needs to be discussed. Any other questions? Probe. Okay, go ahead. I wonder about the development or lack of development of. Uh, you want to hear his microphone? <laughs> <laughs> I thought he had one. <laughs> <laughs> The, um, basically, the development or lack of development of uh, carbon capture technologies. Is that happening? Is the UN encouraging that? Uh, what's your vision of that? Well, I think the IPCC is pretty clear that we most assuredly will need it if we don't, if, if we, we, when I say we, you, you know what I mean, but if we don't bend the trajectory quickly, it's going to almost absolutely be required. Um, and, you know, taking carbon out of the atmosphere as well. I mean, um, 
we we don't have any active programs on it, but we you know I think the the science says yes, and we tell countries that that's the reality. I think much more controversial is you didn't you didn't ask, but geoengineering, um, <clears throat> particularly putting sulfate aerosols into the um, into the atmosphere to reduce the Earth's albedo. That that's something that's maybe more worrisome. Um, but but geoengineering, my personal view is that I think it will be needed. The problem is that governments are not supporting it, and the private sector is not willing to invest until there's clear um, policy, more policy. So it's proceeding, but at too slow a pace. Yes. Last question. Oh, there was one down here, too. Yeah. Well, we, we put our emphasis on, on energy efficiency because, because the technologies are, for the most part, known and you can deploy them quickly and they, they have an immediate effect on the trajectory. I think carbon capture and storage would, would, would fit into that. And that's it's a whole category, you know, direct air capture. There's a lot of research underway. Um, I, would, I would be guessing as to, you know, which one might yield... Bene, you know, might might be cost effective and such. I I think we just need to try many different things at this point. You know, it's not it's the the search for the holy grail that will solve all the problems. I don't think it exists. Great. <laughs> I wish it was. So, <clears throat> to address your um, one of the last points you made about uh, you know a lot of the local governments trying to just push off any of the changes they want to make until the next administration, how can you imbue this sense of urgency um, for these, you know, negotiators to recognize that, you know, they need to set aside their local politics in favor of, you know, what is essentially the greater good to achieve the long-term change necessary for this kind of problem? Yeah, I mean, it strikes to the heart, I suppose, of where does political leadership come from? And, um... <clears throat> You know, if we could solve that, then we probably would uh, have the solution to a lot of other problems as well. Um, what we are seeing is a lot more interest on the part of local governments and city governments in particular. It seems that mayors are much more attuned to the the immediate concerns of their of their uh, their citizens. They're much closer to the action, and so a lot of the interesting activities that are being taken are not by national governments, they're by, by city governments and state governments. Um, it could be that, the na that in, most, in many countries that the country is too big and too amorphous and there's no political consensus and so it's just paralyzed and, and therefore it falls on, on uh, lower levels of government to take action and that's, that is indeed what we're seeing. Maybe it begins, you know, locally. Could be the answer. We should get rid of the countries and then we just, um, you know, live with cities, I guess. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much, yeah. Mark, for your great presentation. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.